0: Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this week is our executive producer and Employment Authority Managing Editor, Amber
1: McKinney. Hey, Amber, welcome to the show again. Natalie, so nice to be with you. We have three opinions that dropped just this morning, and I'm excited to get into it. So am I, and
0: we've, we've brought you back on board uh, for a specific reason, which is that first one that we really want to talk about um, really does deal with employment, and I know that is your space, so I'm excited to hear what this ruling means. Um, but yeah, three opinions down. We're slowly whittling down the pile. I'm excited. We have about a month to go. It's June. Usually the term ends at the end of June. We'll see if they make it. They have like 27 opinions. So I we'll believe see. in them.
1: We've had these, these um, things happen in the past where we were very dubious that we would get them all done in time. And Somehow the court always gets it together, makes us journalists feel a little crazy in the month of June, but I think they're going to get to them all because they're having days like today where they whittle it down by a few. The first one, though, as you said, Natalie, that we want to kick off with and what we want to spend the bulk of today's show on is basically how I just can't stay away when it's a week that we get a big labor opinion. Um, This one actually has the potential to have an immediate impact, so interesting to talk about. You may remember a bunch of headlines over the past year, two years, about a real uptick in strike activity. The phrases like striketober was thrown around last fall. Um, There have been walkouts at Starbucks locations, work stoppages at big-name places like John Deere, The New York Times, not just to name a few. And so the idea of strikes and the Supreme Court getting involved in, in some things around those is pretty interesting at this time in history. And this morning, the high court ruled... In a case called Glacier Northwest versus Teamsters Local 174, that employers can sue over strikes structured to cause intentional damage to their property. The ruling was 8-1. It was penned by Amy Coney Barrett.
0: Fascinating. So give us the facts of what happened here. Um, You know, I hear intentional damage. I can sometimes think the worst. Uh,
1: But if I remember this case, it involves cement trucks, right? It does. This is actually uh, the most interested I've ever been in cement, Natalie. So here we go. The basic rundown of what happened. Glacier Northwest uh, is a concrete company in Seattle. The unionized workers who drive their cement makers were frustrated with the pace of bargaining, and they decided to strike. They reported to work, and some of the trucks were loaded with cement. At an appointed time, the drivers drove their trucks back to the company's headquarters and walked off the job. Some of the trucks had cement in them, as I said, and the drivers actually left those trucks running so the cement theoretically wouldn't harden, at least for a time. But the company was unable to deliver the cement in time, and so it did, in fact, harden in many of those trucks, and that required it to be destroyed and carted away. The company says it lost upwards of uh, $100,000 based on what happened with the strike. That's a lot of cement. Yeah, it is. I mean, I guess it adds up fast when you got a fleet of of cement mixers, right? So... It's actually what happened next that the high court had to weigh in on. Glacier sued the Teamsters under state law for tortious destruction of company property. The company argued that because the Teamsters strategically started the strike after the cement was loaded into many of the trucks, that they were responsible when that product was destroyed by their choice to walk off the job. The Washington Supreme Court, however, dismissed the case, saying it wasn't appropriate for a state tort law to be decided in a labor dispute covered by federal labor law. The Teamsters had at this point already even filed an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board, saying that Glacier only filed the state lawsuit in retaliation for the strike. So you can see how this is getting contentious very quickly. Um, In a previous case, uh, San Diego Building Trades versus Garmin, the Supreme Court found that federal labor law does broadly preempt the application of state law to labor disputes The court at the time had a pretty good reason for that. There is an interest in making sure labor law applies uniformly to all workers and all employers across the country. There is an exception, though, for state torts that are so deeply rooted that it can't be inferred that Congress took away the state's power to act. That's an exception to this preemption. So that's kind of what's at issue here. So before we get into the opinion of today,
0: what did each side argue?
1: Yeah, I'm going to kind of weave that together a little bit. Natalie, I'll tell you a little bit of what they argued and then what the court did today. So both sides do agree to the basic idea that the right to strike is not absolute, that there are some limits in the law. The company said the state's interest in curbing intentional property destruction meets that exception to the Garmin preemption. And so a lawsuit here would be allowable. Meanwhile, the Teamsters had warned the court that allowing a company's suit to go forward could result in basically parallel actions in court and at the NLRB, and that could create potentially conflicting outcomes about the lawfulness of a strike. So that could get very messy. Um, the Supreme Court ruling, the one that came out this morning, centered mostly on how federal labor law does not shield strikers who fail to take what they call reasonable precautions to protect their employer's property from foreseeable, aggravated, and imminent danger due to a sudden work stoppage like a strike. The court concluded that the Teamsters here did not meet their burden and did not pass that test because they didn't demonstrate that federal labor law protects the driver's exact conduct here. In the opinion, Barrett wrote this. Indeed, far from taking reasonable precautions to mitigate foreseeable danger to Glacier's property— The union executed the strike in a manner designed to compromise the safety of Glacier's trucks and destroy its concrete. Now, you mentioned before that this was an eight-to-one decision. Who was the dissent and why? Well, I'd like to throw out there, there were some concurrences too, but let's keep it simple here and just go straight to the dissent. And that was by Katanji Brown-Jackson. And she wrote a lot about how this was really about what should be sorted out at the NLRB instead of at the court. She said the court, quote, scrupulously guarded the board's authority for more than half a century. And then Katanchi Brown-Jackson went on to say that today the court had faltered and is basically saying that some fact-sensitive issues are better, that she believes are better decided by the NLRB are now being shifted to the court system. This is another quote from her dissent. The majority also misapplies the board's cases in a manner that threatens to both impede the board's uniform development of labor law and erode the right to strike. Some strong words there. What's the impact? Well, many in the labor movement say that unions will be more reluctant to call strikes because they could face lawsuits when work stoppages cost employers property. And so there may be many skirmishes and disputes over whether or not union members on strike are responsible for any loss of property. You could see how that would have a potential chilling effect. This also follows on a string of earlier cases over the last several years But the courts really narrowed what's covered by the National Labor Relations Act, essentially making it harder for workers to organize and collectively bargain. So, this is in line with that trend. Employers, essentially, under this ruling, now have more leeway to argue that a strike has caused economic damage and that a union can be held liable for it. And even the threat of that kind of litigation around such issues can, like I said, have a chilling effect, make strikes less likely. So this could slow the momentum around strikes that we've seen since the pandemic. So maybe no striketober this fall. That's super fascinating. And it'll, I, I think you're
0: right. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out on the ground, if it will indeed chill um, union activity. Although I, I feel like loss of major product like cement
1: is very particular circumstances. <laughs> so it it is, but I think we'll probably see a lot of fact-intensive skirmishes, right? So we may have plenty to write about for Employment Authority, the product that I oversee here at Law360. So stay tuned, I guess.
0: So briefly, I did also want to touch on the other opinions we saw today. Both were unanimous, um, and they both helped kind of sharpen the paths towards certain litigation Um, In one Slack Technologies versus Pirani, the justices took on shareholder suits. Um, And here specifically, they narrowed the ability of shareholders to sue companies that go public via direct listing, which is a relatively new way to go public, that that it doesn't require an underwriter and it can include like a mix of registered shares that are tied to a registration statement and unregistered shares. So basically they said you can't sue like a shareholder against, uh, you know, saying a misleading statement or registration document unless you can specifically show you bought registered shares. Um, so here, Fayez Pirani, he if he can directly trace the shares he bought to a registration statement that he says was misleading, um, he can go forward with his suit. But if he can't, that's the end of the road. And this, you know, again, will set limits to what is a, a kind of getting more popular way of going public for some companies.
1: Okay, so we had the case I talked about where they opened the door to more suits around strikes and property damage. Then, Natalie, you just told us about one where they're sort of curtailing what shareholders can do to sue. And I know we had a third, so I'm going to do this real top line. This is for the whistleblower nerds out there. Anybody that wants to get more into this, I do just want to kind of flag it. This is a case involving supermarket chain Super Value and Safeway. And in this one, the justices unanimously ruled that liability under the False Claims Act hinges on whether the defendants—so that's the supermarkets here—thought they were lying. And this one actually overturned a Seventh Circuit Court decision, said the supermarkets were in the clear because they made what what's called quote objectively reasonable interpretations of ambiguous law. This was actually about some Medicare and Medicaid payments, and the whistleblower said that they were doing that improperly. Supermarkets said that well objectively, reasonably, we believed it was okay. And that's what it all turned on. So if you are a whistleblower person out there, want to know more about that area of the law, this is an interesting interpretation. That's right. It it basically made
0: it a little harder to judge a False Claims Act case. Um, And I highly recommend everyone check out um, our senior reporter, Daniel Wilson's coverage of this story. Amber, like I said, thank you so much for joining us again this week. I really appreciate it. I feel like just of these kind of hard-to-understand sometimes employment cases. So thank you again, and hopefully we'll be back next week with some more opinions.
1: I'm always happy to be here. We're in the hot season of Supreme Court Opinions. It's when I get really excited, so thanks for having me on, Natalie.
0: And thanks to our listeners. If you like this episode, please leave us a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Thanks so much to our reporters who contributed to this episode, Jessica Mock, Braden Campbell, and Daniel Wilson. Music for the show comes from Thunderbeats. Uh, for more information about all the high court action, please go to law 60com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listening to podcasts. Just search Law360 and the term. Thanks for listening.